I'm here with panelists who will introduce themselves because they'll be able to do themselves um, more justice than I can. Um, so the format for this is we're going to tell you a little bit about who we are, about our shows. I might throw out a starter question, and then we'll see if you have questions. And if you do, great. And if not, I have a list. <laughs> so I can keep things going in case we, we need the help here. Um, so Emily, would you like to start? Sure. I'm Emily Prokop. I host The Story Behind, which is a short five to 10 minute podcast about the history of everyday objects. So I go into the paperclip, um, Reese's candy, <laughs> you know, all the tiny little things that we take for granted. And it's a, a lot of fun. I started it because I was a trivia buff and my friends at parties got sick of me just hopping into conversations and being like, hey, do you know the origin behind that? They're like, you need a hobby. And I was like, oh, I found podcasting. That's great. And then I found my audience and their trivia buffs and we geek out together and it's a lot of fun. So that's me. Uh, my name is Patrick Wyman. I'm the host of the Tides of History podcast uh, in partnership with the podcast network Wondery. Um, before that, I hosted the show The Fall of Rome. Uh, so I got started in podcasting after I finished my PhD in history in 2016, which was on the fall of the Roman Empire. So it was a pretty natural uh, move from working on that topic in an academic sense to trying to talk to a popular audience about it. At the same time, I was working as a sports journalist and I was hosting podcasts for that too, podcasts and radio shows. So it seemed like a natural fit with the medium. Um, when I jumped in, I got really lucky and it turned out people were interested in the show and so now this is my full-time job is making history podcasts um, so tides of history uh, I've been working on it for about the last 15 months now I started off and did and kind of went back and forth between the fall of the Roman Empire and the early modern period but now I'm all early modern all the time the period between about 1350 and 1650 uh, so cover everything from political history to religious history to my personal favorite is economic history, um, which I don't think is something that gets covered a lot in, uh, in history podcasting, um, but especially daily life, uh, how these things worked on the ground for people. So um, I try to combine storytelling, uh, really in-depth and detailed storytelling with uh, the cutting edge of academic research on a topic. So go as deep as possible, but try and convey that uh, in human uh, narrative terms to really pull the audience in. Um, and, you know, the shows that I do, I've kind of always had the commercial aspect in mind. Like, the shows that I do are, are, are definitely commercial. It's not like, I, it's like a passion project. Like, I love doing history, but this is also my job. Uh, and so there are some different things that go along when, when you're making a show that has to reach a wide audience to be commercially viable. Uh, that's, it just changes the kind of the dynamic a little bit. Uh, like it has to scale, you have to do, uh, there's a lot of things that you have to worry about in terms of how many fingers are, are in the pie before it reaches the, before it reaches the final product. Um, but yeah, so that's what I do. I'm Liz Covart. As I said, I'm the creator and host of Ben Franklin's World. It's a podcast about early American history. It's a weekly interview-driven show. We do do some narratives, especially in the Doing History series, which is a special series we run once a year about process. So we talk about how historians know what they know about the past how do they do the work that what they do? And the interview format, I'm really interviewing scholars who have new museum exhibits or new books out. It's mostly new books because scholars with books never say no to you when you ask them if they want an interview. Um, and we're really trying to make great scholarship about early America accessible. Um, and it is interview based because in 2014 or even 13 when I was looking for a co-host, nobody knew what a podcast was in my circles. Um, and so it was a case of interviews are sustainable. I can do them on a weekly basis trying to do a narrative 
Um, now that I've done them, that wouldn't really be sustainable for me the way I want to do it. Um, so yeah, that's our experience. Uh, and I'm David Stenhouse. I'm the executive editor of Backstory. Um, Backstory has been around for uh, more than 10 years, which in a world of podcasting means that we are the, the IBM or the General Motors. Uh, <laughs> so many podcasts are like fireflies, you know, they're here for, for a few seconds, but uh, Backstory has been around for a long time. Uh, first as a public radio show, um, hosted on more than 200 different stations across the US, and then in the last 18 months as a podcast being published purely in a digital space. Um, and so, Backstory is a big beast. Uh, we have got uh, lots of institutional connections. We've got lots of institutional support so that we are produced out of Virginia Humanities, uh, which itself sits under the wing of the University of Virginia. We have four academic hosts, which is itself unusual. One of them is a tenured professor at UVA. Uh, the other, Ed Ayers, Ed Brian Ballow is a tenured professor at UVA. Ed Ayers is the former president of the University of Richmond. Uh, Joanne Freeman is at uh, Yale. She's recently published a fantastic book called Fields of Blood about physical violence on the floor of, this, of the Congress leading up to the Civil War, congressmen uh, hitting each other with sticks and punching each other and sheltering beneath their desks. Uh, and, uh, and Nathan Connolly, our fourth host, is from Johns Hopkins. So we've got four kind of big academic brains as hosts. We have grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities. We've got a whole host of kind of institutional connections. And I joined Backstory in January. I, uh, as you can tell from my accent, which has not fully completed its transition from Scotland to America, uh, I'm a, a Brit. I spent um, the better part of two decades working as a producer for the BBC, uh, producing shows for Radio 4 and the World Service and um, kind of factual content there. And so I've come in in this really interesting stage in Backstory's development where we are kind of thinking, okay, what does a show that's been around for 10 years do now when it already has a great back catalogue, which is up on our website, covering everything from reconstruction to uh, prohibition to you know all the big topics of American history? And one of the things we've tried to do more recently is we're trying to work with other podcasters who are doing great work in the history sphere. That's a big uh, thing for our agenda for next year. Uh, and the other thing is we're trying to be a little bit more quirky in some of our uh, topics that we're choosing. So... Backstory, for the first time, put out a two-part uh, show just this last month uh, on whaling in America. The reason we did a two-part show was the minute we started looking at whaling, we realized this is a topic which is just so huge, you know, an enormously important economic driver in America's, his America's history, but also a great way to talk about technology, about chemistry, about um, sea shanties, about cross-dressing whalers, about, you know, and so it went on and on and on. And uh, I think what works really well for a backstory is great storytelling. So that to give an example from that whale show, we had a fantastic scholar called Jamie Jones from the University of um, uh, Illinois, and she told a great story which was set at the time when petroleum was about to replace whale oil as the major source of America's power. And so for the first time, whales became more significant as spectacle than as power source. And so some guys decided this was a great time in the 1880s to put a whale on the back of a train and take it on a tour of the Midwest so that folk in Chicago could see a whale. And this was a really great idea, especially because it started in the depths of the winter. But as the tour took off and more and more people wanted to come and see it, 
um, spring followed winter, and with spring, the whale started to smell more and more. So by the time it reached Toledo, it was the stinkiest whale on the planet, uh, and it was turned away by the, the city fathers of Toledo as a public health nuisance. And it was a fantastic piece of storytelling, but it also got us into some really, really interesting stuff about, you know, how did people see great creatures, you know, uh, from, the, the, from the deep uh, if they lived in Chicago and the Discovery Channel wasn't due to be invented for 100 years? Or... Um, what did happen when whales stopped being that incredibly valuable chemical commodity and started being this thing? What did you do with it next? And that kind of stuff. And I think that what really works for backstory is um, scholars who get that, who are able to tell a story and express the, their fantastic research in a really compelling bit of storytelling. Sometimes it's a challenge to get them there, and that's maybe something that we'll all talk about, uh, working with the, the folk who give us their, uh, the benefit of their, of their scholarship and their sweat, and sometimes the difficulties we have in massaging them to give us what we exactly want. But uh, I think when it works, it really does. And I think the fact that there's such an interest in this kind of uh, conference here this weekend really shows that we are not just in the middle of a podcast boom time, time we are absolutely at the center of a kind of history podcast boom time. There is such fascination for the idea of expressing historical research in podcasts, whether that's produced by university departments or newspapers or magazines or, you know, radio stations or, or other folks who just have their own passion and their own, uh, their own podcasts they want to get out there. This is a great, great time to be having this conversation, I think. And to jump on the fact that we are in a history podcast moment, it seems like a great question for us to kind of start off on is, what are people's interests in history? Like, what are your listeners emailing you about or tweeting you about and asking you to cover topics? Because we have a very diverse panel with different, different topics. So let's cover the swap, you know, the, the grand scheme of things. What are people asking you to cover historically? They're mostly asking me to cover things that they didn't hear in their history classes, that their teachers weren't telling them, that they weren't quizzed on. They want to hear about the Industrial Revolution, but not about the year the steam engine was invented and how Robert Fulton, blah, 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 blah. They want to hear, like, hey, during the Civil War, they decided they needed to invent ketchup. It's like, oh, you know what? Hey, uh, we're fighting let's smash some tomatoes together and make that Heinz. I think it was Heinz that has like the 19, 1863 on it. <laughs> but they want to hear these little tiny things that they can repeat at the water cooler, that they can tell their friends, that they have in their mind. And maybe it doesn't mean anything. They're not being tested on it. But it's just really something interesting to learn. And also to find out things from history that when they're living now and they're going through things and they're seeing what's on the news and they're like, we are the only generation that's dealing with this. It's like, ah, no, 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 <laughs> you're not. Let's go back. Let's look at that. And they love hearing about that. And that's what I hear from in the emails is, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize that that had already happened. Um, I would say I mostly get questions about political and military history. Uh, I think that is easily the, thing, the stuff that my listeners come at this subject matter with the most experience in, and it's the thing that they think they're most interested in to start with. Um, that's not necessarily what I want to focus most of my time on. Uh, like As a historian and as a creator of these kinds of stories, I think that um, if you want a, like a lot of political history, the kind of like straightforward list of events that, that is most people's introduction to history in general, um, that's not really what I want to do. And so I try to backdoor uh, 
the, the kind of signposts and, and, uh, and hooks that people already have into a kind of a deeper exploration of these topics. So instead of, if we're gonna do political history, we're gonna talk about institutions and systems of governance and taxation and bureaucracy. Uh, and now you may need to find uh, a kind of an in into that. And the way that I like to do that is with composite characters um, or to try to find real people that we can kind of hang these, hang these stories on. Um, but it's definitely political and military history is what people think they, think they wanna know more about. I get so many questions about the Roman army. Just question after question after question and often about very minute things that like they clearly picked up in uh, in like an introductory book at some point in the last 25 years uh, especially from older people um, I have a, I have a lot of uh, like older listeners and that's definitely a thing that they absolutely read about at some point and and are have been dying to get an answer to um, but it, I would say that's the that's the biggest thing but it kind of runs the gamut um, I'll get questions about modern history sometimes I don't I don't know I have no, no specific background in that. Uh, that and books to read. What books um, should, should they be reading? What are some recommendations for something on this topic or that topic? So we do regular like book review episodes uh, to talk about something that, that caught my interest that I've, that I've had a chance to read or, or listen to on Audible. Uh, we, do, we do a lot of that. It's definitely book recommendations and then specific minute things about political and military history. Everyday life. <laughs> when I did the 200th episode and said, send me your questions about what you want to know, how did people bathe? <laughs> what did women do when they menstruated? I mean, all sorts of questions. How did the post office work? Um, so we did a whole show like answering these three different questions about you know, everyday life that was going on. We also get a lot of questions now um, in our biography series that is airing right now. It's four episodes. We just put out the second one. The Supreme Court. Civics lessons, how, do, how does the Supreme Court work? How does the government work? Can you tell us more about the Bill of Rights? Um, so these are topics we're looking at. Um, looking at. So the early or American origins of government and of course, everyday life. We get a lot of questions from teachers um, and I think they're looking for specific support on how to teach areas like reconstruction or civil rights or the end of civil war. Um, we Surprisingly, we actually have quite a young audience. Um, I'm, I say surprising because I came from a world on the BBC where the audience for, for factual, serious programmes was sort of 45 up. Um, but the backstory audience is sort of 35 and younger, which is really interesting. A large number involved in education as students themselves or as teachers or as undergraduates and postgraduates studying history. Um, we're also starting to get a lot of sort of intrigued responses to our slightly quirkier shows, so that the, the Wales thing generated an enormous amount of correspondence from people. Uh, one woman uh, who spoke about her tribe's involvement as in Native American whaling, uh, someone else who spoke about seeing in the 1980s a kind of 1980s version of the whale on a train, which was a, a kind of rather fusty old whale stuck in a dank tank that he discovered as a boy in, in a... Um, uh, parked beside the, the motorway in Pennsylvania. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of personal kind of responses. Um, we also get suggestions for stories that people have maybe looking to us to bust myths. That's quite a popular one. We put a show out which looked at kind of myths in American history and that got a huge 
uh, amount of traction. I think there's a real desire that people have to be told the truth, maybe a feeling that they're not getting from the rest of the media um, an accurate picture of history. I think the other thing that uh, I've realised um, since I've been here, which I don't think I'd ever realised before, and uh, you know I've got kids in education here now, is the, the teaching of history, I think, in this country is very patchy. I think there are some wonderful teachers of history. There are some great enthusiasts or people doing a great job. In other places, in other states, in other towns, there is very little support available for teachers to actually do their job. In some places, there is a positive pressure to really not make history a great thing to teach, really not any encouragement for history to be taught. I think that what that's led to is a real kind of information gap and a real kind of hunger for authoritative sources. And I think a lot of the responses that all of us as podcasters get are people who really want information, you know? And it just shows you that when you have a mainstream media, which I think is increasingly bland and information-free and entertainment-driven, that that has created a great space for podcasters to actually put meaningful content out there, and there's absolutely an audience for that. Okay, so I said I have questions. I can keep us going, but before I do that, what are your questions about podcasting and history, and how can we help? Yep. Did everybody hear that question? I'm just trying to gauge, well, okay, great. So I don't have to repeat it. Um, who would like to go first? Um, I, I mean, I'll start. So when I think about what kind of story is going to work or what kind of topic is going to work, uh, the first thing I start with is how am I going to fit this to the size of the show that I want to do? So this is going to be between 45 and 60 minutes. Um, that's going to be a script of anywhere between 6,500 and 9,000 words. What can I possibly say about a topic that's going to fit there? Like what level of detail am I going to get into? How do I how do I tell a story that works in its individual parts? Because we've got we've got three segments. We've got we've got first segment, ad break, second segment, ad break, and then third segment takes us to the end. How do I make sure that each one of those segments is internally coherent while telling a broader story over the course of the whole episode that also fits into kind of a broader uh, uh, stretch that I'm doing? So when I'm thinking about a topic like if I want to, I'm going to do the Wars of the Roses in a couple weeks. How many episodes is it going to take to do that? I think I could probably do it in two if I really rushed it along, but that's probably three. So how much research is out there? Um, how much, like how much research am I going to have to do for this topic? Um, how long is it going to take to write the script? Um, all of these things go into trying to figure out how, uh, how it's going to go down. I mean, there's a lot of planning involved if I'm going to, if I'm going to do a topic. Like I, I may have something that I really want to do and it could just be too big. Um, I may have to figure out how I'm going to cut it down to provide some sort of narrative anchor over the course of one episode and then how's that going to fit in with a broader thing. Well, talking for backstory, um, our segments tend to be talking to one scholar uh, about a different, different aspects of a story. So, for example, um, to talk about our whale show again, uh, we knew that there were certain topics we wanted to catch, so we wanted probably to have a segment on sea shanties. So we found uh, a scholar in California who'd done some innovative work about sea shanties relating it to Native American 
song, uh, work songs. Uh, so we set up an interview with him. Uh, we record about 45 minutes. We then cut that down, intersplice it with some songs, and try and make it as vivid as possible. Um, with the segment on the whale on the train, we interspersed a very uh, vivid and colourful and comic points, discussion with the scholar, with some great readings from, you know, Toledo. What's the great stink in Toledo? You know, we, we've got a great actor that we work with to do that. Um, so the, the challenge, I think, for us is essentially what we're doing is we are trying to gussy up and make more lively conversations with scholars. And as we all know, some scholars are fantastically vivid at telling stories and some are not. Uh, and so the pre-production process that we go through where you basically get the scholar on the phone and say, Professor X, I also, sorry, I always say Professor X and people think the X-Men, I don't mean that. Uh, <laughs> Professor X, I'm sorry to take you away from your work with the, the gifted students in your, in your private school. Uh, no, you know, you'd phone up the professor, you'd say, I gather you, you've been doing some work on this, can you tell me what you're working on? And you would get them to tell the story. And that call tells you a lot. It tells you essentially their capacity to tell a story in an entertaining and vivid way. And sometimes the expert is not the person you want. Sometimes the person you want is somebody, perhaps a younger scholar, someone who's written more recently, someone who's really passionately engaged. Because I think that one of the qualities that really comes through, whether you're talking to or, uh, you know, an ordinary Joe or the top professor at Harvard is passion, engagement, enthusiasm. And if the person you're talking to doesn't have those things, you don't want them on your podcast. You don't want them on your radio show. You, that's, the, that's the call that you just want to say. It was really great to talk to you, but I've decided to take this in a slightly different direction. So you're constantly casting and trying to think, how do I make this alive? And the resources that you would have might be music or readings or extracts or, you know, and, and the scripting that you will be doing as a producer for your, for your hosts as well. And the hosts are, you know, uh, a, great, um, a great way of getting the best out of often the, the only way to get the best out of the scholar they're talking to. So you need to work with them to ensure they're asking questions that really engage the scholar's interest and will engage your, your audience's interest. But there's nothing I wouldn't touch. I mean, there's nothing I would say, we are not going to do that, that is not going to make audio. And I think that you know, the, the range of experiences we all have here show that you, know, you can illustrate moments from really early American history but you can do that in a way that's really incredibly accessible and vivid. So, you know, I would absolutely love to do a show about the Atlantic, you know, the very early days, pre-settlement, you know. Now, how we do that is challenging because it's about archaeology and it's about climate change and stuff, but I'm convinced we could find the scholars and I hope that we will at some point be able to do it. Yeah, and just to, to add on to that, you know, one thing we'd been thinking about is when we get these legal questions and talking about legal history, like how did something from common law become United States law? Legal history, I, we're gonna do it at some point, but I'm still thinking my way through, like how do you do that in audio? Like legal history works really great in a book because if they mention some sort of legal term, you can always go back or you can look it up in an index, but it's really hard to go back in the audio and fast forward and like how many times do you need to explain that? So it's finding the right frame and thinking about, you know, what works in audio specifically. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from a little bit of practice doing it um, and listening widely to a lot of different podcasts and how they're doing different things. How are they employing sound? Um, how are they packaging stories? Like, how does, you know, um, what is it, uh, almost perfect? Um, there's a radio lab that, that, that does civics. I've been, li li what is it? Yeah, more perfect. I've been listening to that, their stories to figure out how, how they're doing some sort of legal history. Um, so in some ways, it's 
thinking about how your community does it too and how you might do it differently or better or, or maybe even mimic it and, and do it slightly the same. I think we have an advantage as being history podcasters because we have a story pretty much. It's right in their history. <laughs> we have a story that we can tell that people have been telling for ages and ages. And that's not to say other genres maybe don't have it as easy, but for history, it's nice that when we want to do a subject, we can pretty much find the beginnings of, for my show, looking up the inventor, finding out how he began doing this or how she started out or how she they got the idea and then going through their life and seeing how that went into play for this everyday object that you know we're using today. So I, I do think we have it, an advantage as a history podcaster, but also we have to think about how our how the listeners are going to react, especially people who are like huge fans of whatever we're covering too. And we have to think about not really servicing them, but making sure that we're not going to get angry emails of just like, you forgot to cover this, and you forgot to cover this, and how dare you leave this out. And I mean, I'm sure we've all gotten those. And you have to think about that, too, as you're forming those episodes. Sure. So how much is searching for history? Um, I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Do you need to have history in the name if you're going to start a history podcast? Do you need to have history in the name of your podcast if you want to start a history podcast? It's funny that they just changed the um, Apple podcast structure where you are not allowed to have keywords in your title anymore, which was how a lot of us were found, was I was the story behind. Uh, pipe and then the extraordinary history of the ordinary because I knew people would go into their podcast apps and search history. They wouldn't know to look for my show. They wouldn't know to look for story or behind, hopefully not behind. They wouldn't be searching for that. <laughs> but <laughs> So I had history in there, but they changed it so that now they're taking down shows that have those key words in there. So I took out that subtitle. So I've seen my numbers go down a bit because people aren't organically finding it. So if you are a history podcast, I'm not saying like you have to put history in there, but I mean, you could put true crime in there and you're also considered history apparently. <laughs> and that gets searched a lot. But that's something to consider. You don't have to have it in there, but it kind of does help. I had Ben Franklin's world, so in some ways I evoke history because I use Ben Franklin and I did pick him because if you say Ben Franklin, what's the mental image you get in your head, right? 18th century, early America, and that's exactly the image I wanted to evoke. Um, the full formal title is a podcast about early American history because I just wanted to clarify it's not about Ben Franklin, it's about the world that he <laughs> lived in um, and you know we could do that and I have not taken it out of my title but I figure since Apple promotes us every once in a while that it's probably okay so I'm just gonna leave it. Yeah. They won't tell us the specifics on yeah. what's considered a keyword and not. Our, our subtitle is um, with the American history guys uh, and that came from the fact that when Backstory was launched, uh, Car Talk was um, 
the big thing, and everybody wanted to make the car talk for cookery, the car talk for gardening, the car talk for chiropody, uh, the car talk for history. And so they went with the American History Guys. At that stage, we also had three male hosts. The origin of our, of our show was that um, three academics from the University of Virginia were uh, friends and used to go out for dinner uh, a lot, Peter Onuf, Ed Ayers, and Brian Ballow. And one night they went out with a guy called Andrew Windham, who said, you know, you guys should be on the radio. And they said, yeah, yeah. And Andrew Windham had this passionate idea that he wanted to put the show on the radio, and he knocked on every single door until finally one opened to him, and that's how the show began. Uh, and when Peter Onuf decided he wanted to retire, we took the view that having three white male hosts um, whose diversity was that one was the 18th century guy, one was the 19th century guy, and one was the 20th century guy was perhaps maybe not the kind of picture we wanted to present to the world, and so we made an effort to change our host lineup and, and get them a, a bit more diverse. But So we've got history there in the title somewhere, but, you know... People agonize about the titles of shows. After a while, they just become a label, you know? They become meaningless. They just become the thing you are known as. And so I can see that in a crowded marketplace, it maybe makes sense to have history there so people can find what they're looking for. But once you have a brand identity, then that's your name. And some, there are plenty of shows out there with really stupid names that were once thought to be great, but we never hear them anymore because that's just what the show's called. listen to Tides of History or Hardcore History or Diplomacy Fails, and something that um, you guys always do is reference the books that you use in order to become prepared for that particular topic, especially if it's not in your PhD focus. So I'm just curious, you know, how much time does it take for you to read the books that you need to be prepared? When you say that's enough, how long does it take for you to write the script? So it, it takes me a full week to research two episodes. I try and do linked episodes on, I, I try and do two episodes on topics that are similar enough that I can get away with kind of one big chunk of research. But for that, I, I end up getting, I probably read five books all the way through. I probably um, gut five more just for argument and then I will kind of reference five more at various other points. Um, it's. It, and then it takes about a week to write each script. It takes about five full work days for me to write for me to write a single script if I'm getting 1,500 to 2,000 words a day. Uh, so, and then editing, and then it takes a few days of editing each of those afterward. So it's a full I mean, it's a full thing. But the but as far as the books are concerned, like I don't reference every every book that I use, and I don't use all of the material that I come up with either. I think something that's really underrated when it comes to I mean not just podcasting but kind of writing in general is that most of your your work is like an iceberg. Most of what you do should not be visible to the to the listener or to the reader. You don't need to like put out every single thing that you learned just because you learned it. Um, most of creating a kind of a listenable thing, a thing that is compelling to, to your listener, that's going to be compelling to your reader, is in the act of choosing what goes in and what doesn't. So um, it's not necessarily about just about how much you've done. It's about, what, it's about making the judgment call in what stays in and what doesn't. Uh, we work in a slightly different way in that we have a researcher who is a, a rather brilliant researcher who's doing a PhD in history at UVA, and the way the producers work is they say, we want to do a show in four weeks' time on uh, the history of taxidermy in America, and Monica will go off and she will pull 
uh, four or five amazing stories about uh, the history of taxidermy in America, from uh, why so many Confederate battle horses were stuffed, to what happened to Edgar Allan Poe's raven after it died, to um, the guy who wanted to stuff the founding fathers. Have you come across him? No, but that sounds like an interesting story. <laughs> yeah, guy, one, a guy, and I'm going to get his name wrong, who was such an incredible enthusiast for taxidermy. And I think he possibly had in mind the example of the English philosopher Jeremy Bentham. Does anyone know uh, about Jeremy Bentham, who was kind of mummified and is on, still occasionally on display at UCL in London, brought out for dinners, the kind of body, desiccated body. And so he proposed that he would stuff the Founding Fathers because the Founding Fathers were clearly at the kind of pinnacle of humanity. At that point, I think there were two or three of them left, but he got a rather dusty answer when he wrote to them asking if they would consent to be taxidermied. Go for it. Precisely. Lenin, Ho Chi Minh. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, so she comes back with all of these fantastic stories. The producers uh, then take that away, contact the scholars, and we, and we take it from there. Um, we also benefit from the fact that our hosts are you know, full-time academics who are really into the, um, into the topic. But I absolutely go around and my colleagues have got you know, sort of dusty tomes on their desk and they're researching. You know, so it's a kind of little Dickensian scene as everybody kind of works their way through there. Over here. These are great questions. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I know I did an episode, I did a series on references in Forrest Gump, in the movie Forrest Gump. So I did the story behind Dr. Pepper. I did the story behind the stand in the schoolhouse store. And I did the story behind Nathan Bedford Forrest, who in the movie, I'm sorry, oh my God, I'm the worst podcaster ever. <laughs> in, the, in the movie, he's portrayed, he's shown, you know, he's helping start the KKK. That's what most people know about that. And the great thing about researching and getting more into it is finding out, you know, he did that for maybe two years. And then he was like, wow, you guys are really stupid running around in bed sheets. So it's really nice to be able to not take on that because, I mean, I have a background in journalism, so I'm really just trying to present as much fact as I possibly can without putting a bias or a spin on it. But it is nice to be able to say, yeah, this guy turned it around by the end of his life. He was friends, best friends with the black community and putting that story out there. And I'm, I, I don't know, I'm not necessarily trying to play a character, but it is nice to be able to show as many sides as possible in the span of five to 10 minutes, which is my show, so it's super tiny. Um, I, I try, especially when I make composite characters, to try to walk my listeners through something like you know, the economic collapse of the Roman Empire. Um, 
I try to avoid thinking about like what my characters thought about, like their inner lives, and I try to focus on yeah. what they did, which is which is much more recoverable. Um, so I like to think about what are the things that they're doing with their time on a daily basis. Are they, I mean, are they plowing fields? Are they making pottery? Are they? Those are things that I think are relatable to people that don't require you to try to get inside the head of somebody who lived in the past, who is occupying a much different mental landscape, a much different world that is often, especially for everyday people who didn't leave behind written records, very hard for us to get at, right? So whenever possible, I try to, I try to leave the question aside. Um, when it comes to doing something like a political narrative and you, and you kind of have to dig into the motivations of why people, why leaders did the things that they did, generals did the things that they did, um, then I just try to go with whatever the best consensus, the best scholarly consensus is. Uh, I don't, it's not something I've thought about probably as much as I should have if we're being honest about it, but that's a really good question. As an interview show, it doesn't come up too much, but in this episode that's out right now, the new one, episode 210, we're covering John Marshall, and I interviewed Joel Richard Paul, who's a legal scholar out at the University of California Law School at Hastings, or Hastings Law School, and you know, we talked about this, the series is designed to get behind the scenes of biography. Like, what is biography designed to do as a genre? Why do we find it so captivating? So in this case, we are talking about people. And, you know, I asked Joel about Marshall and slavery because Marshall's complicated on slavery. Like, privately, he, he did things like tried to get the state of Virginia to um, welcome um, free African Americans as citizens. It didn't go anywhere, but he tried. He supposedly in his life defended slaves against their masters in court pro bono. But one thing that we didn't talk about in the episode, you know, that was in the book was he has this manservant, Robin Spurlock. They, Robin Spurlock basically watches his house and his wife who is suffering from mental illness, it sounded like, for most of her life. Um, while Marshall's off at the court. And when Marshall dies in his will, he tells Robin Spurlock he can have his freedom if he moves to Africa. And so Spurlock, he's only ever known Virginia and his fa family and friends in Virginia, so he goes to continue his enslavement under Marshall's daughter rather than move to Africa. So in this case, I thought that Joel was a little light on Marshall in our conversation, and I just wanted to point out that it was complicated. So I didn't, you know, I can't get in Marshall's head, so just like Patrick was saying, I try to focus on deeds. And so I just pointed that out, like, hey, Joel covered this in his book. It's complicated, but our guests who talked about biography said, people are complicated, and you won't get a great biography if people aren't complicated. Um, and I just, I leave it. I, I try not to editorialize a review on the show because we have such a diverse listener base. I really just want people to think about it. Mm -hmm. um, so we point them to things to think about, but I don't tell them how to think about it. So in that one case there, um, that's a case where we tried to talk about motive. So it's other... It's, I, can I, if I may, it's a, I think it's a great question. We had a very interesting example this, this week. We're making a show on LGBTQI history. Um, and we touched on the story of Mrs. Nash. Does anyone know? know? Mrs. Nash is quite a famous story. Um, it's the Wild West. It's the 1840s. Mrs. Nash is a, um, she's a laundry woman. Um, and she does lots of work with, uh, on, on army camps. She has three husbands, um, one after the other. Uh, when she, uh, her third husband is away uh, and Mrs. Nash takes ill and she dies. And when her body is prepared for burial, they discover that Mrs. Nash is biologically a man. Now, 
what is Mrs. Nash's motive? What did her husband's think? We do not know. She didn't write a diary. The husbands didn't write a diary. We know that the poor third husband, so scandalized and so bullied by his colleagues after it becomes clear that his wife was in fact a man, commits suicide, tragically, but we do not, we, we have no insight into their relationship, into the relationship she had with other. Now, fascinating figure, but the, the challenge I think is, how do you tell that story without making a historical figure like that just acted upon by the various waves of academic fashion, of theory, of queer theory, of gender theory, you know? How do you tell that story? How do you do justice to that story when really any insight that you would have into the motives, the human experience, is purely speculative? Listen to podcasts. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I say that glibly, but honestly, I, I created my show to reach people I was reaching in the Park Service, people with an interest in history that wanted to know great, well-researched history, but they didn't know where to find it, and they're, they're not historians, they're not experts. So my goal is always, how do we make the top scholarship accessible? And that's great. We're reaching that audience overwhelmingly, but about... 20% of the audience are people, academics, who read it to study for comps um, and just to keep up on the literature because you can't possibly read this many books and now they can decide, oh, I don't need to read that now or, you know, I can read that or I want, you know, if I want to or visit that museum exhibit, that sort of thing. Um, but the scholars, like at least in our show, because we are so current, are using this language and they'll tell you, and if it is something that's, I mean, I haven't asked specifically about slavery or enslaved because it feels like it's been enslaved for for a while now, but if there is some new term like that, I do occasionally ask a question about it. Um, so one way, in, a free and cheap way to do it would be podcasts, and I think I think Ed probably does some of the same things uh, too in his, because he also interviews authors um, about their books, and I don't know. That's historians.org. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, in the back. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned that you get a lot of guests via there's going around on a book tour or whatever. The question is when you're doing a show like uh, the Baxter or whatever and you've got a topic, mm -hmm. what are the ways you go about trying to find that specific expert you need on sometimes maybe a very specific topic uh, that you need to cover? Uh, are there particular resources or places you look besides searching? Often we're looking for someone with a very niche kind of interest. And so we, you know, we'll use JSTOR and other academic resources to see who's published recently and who has, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, you end up with someone who wrote a fascinating article in 1994 and they can't remember it, you know, or they, they wrote a book 10 years ago and we had someone the other day saying, I can't remember the details of this. I remembered it 10 years ago, but you know what I mean? And so, so sometimes you end up in the situation where you have, you know, scholar A who wrote the book 
1994, or you have somebody more junior who's published something more recent, which is more up-to-date, and you go for the, the person who is, is more up-to-date. But yeah, we would use the normal academic kind of resources to, to see who's published recently, what they've published on, and, and often we're guided, by, we're guided by that. But the other, the other element is, you know, I, I encourage my producers to apply the same principles you would use if you were casting for a public radio show, which is, you know, they might be the greatest, the world's greatest expert on the subject, but if they cannot tell a story and they are boring, then I don't want them on the show, you know. So I think, I think it's that kind of balance, that your duty is to your audience, and putting people on who aren't able to tell a story or carry an argument, it doesn't do anybody any favors, I think. If you can also find another podcaster, they're already comfortable in front of the mic. Yeah. They know the technique. They know the tech. You're not walking them through it. The other thing is there are resources like Help a Reporter Out, which podcasters can use as well. And there's uh, podcastguests.com, which you can sign up if you're looking for guests. And you can sign up if you want to be a guest on other podcasts, too. And you can just search, hey, I'm looking for somebody who maybe does a history podcaster, is looking for somebody to, uh, looking for somebody to be on their show. Yeah, that's happened a few times, um, especially uh, the first show that I did was on the fall of the Roman Empire. That was my academic specialty. Um, and there are almost infinite ways of turning that into a politically charged topic if you were inclined to do so, which there, which uh, I, I had some listeners who were very inclined to do so, uh, especially around issues like immigration. Um, and so I got a lot of feedback on that topic, a lot of it, a lot of it fairly negative from people who were just never, ever, ever going to agree uh, with, with my take on that topic or how I, not my take on it, but how I presented it kind of in line with the most recent available evidence. Like there are just some people for whom those are always going to be barbarian invasions and there is, a, and for them there is a direct lesson to draw uh, from that to, um, to 21st century history. and like. I, you know, I try not to editorialize. I, I, I'm going to put out there whatever the most recent scholarly consensus is, my thoughts on that scholarly consensus, and then it's up to my listeners to kind of make up their minds and, and draw their own conclusions from that. Like, I will always have a role in shaping um, the way that I present that, and but that's unavoidable. You know, you have to pick and choose what goes into it. Um, so, but in terms of like, I'm not going to beat my listeners over the head with the conclusions that I'm going to draw from, you know, a topic about institutional failure at the center of a political system, like they can, they can figure out how they want to take that. I approach that the same way as I, I don't tell my listeners how to think, but like Patrick, I shape the way they do it by pointing out things that they might think about when I summarize. And the listeners have said they like the summary at the end because it just reminds them again of some of the important parts. Um, but I have episodes, Heather Cox Richardson, she's at Boston College. She wrote a big book on the history of the Republican Party. I read that book before Heather and I were friends, and I couldn't tell where she was politically. The book was sound, you know, everything that I had learned in grad school with the footnotes when I'm checking it out looked great. It is one of those things where 
liberals overwhelmingly love it, conservatives hate it, and I'm still like three years later getting email about it. Um, and recently I've gotten email too about the way I cover the founders. Um, I did this episode with Jeannie Abrams, episode 205 on the founding mothers, and it was great. The, the, it's on the review, you can check out Ben Franklin's World on iTunes, it's in a review, um, just saying like, it's great that she covered you know, the founders, but why slavery? Like, it's just obscuring the great things these people did. So there's still like an unwillingness to grapple with what actually happened in the past, even though we're not making any political statement. It's just like, hey, it's, it's there. You can't talk about early America and not talk about slavery, so of course we're going to address it. But it's not like, you know, um, we don't go purposely out of our way to be inflammatory or, or anything like that. We just cover the facts as best we can, and people are going to take those facts the way they take them, and you just have to develop a strong, you know, thick skin because that's history. It's complicated, and it's not always good, and it's not always bad, and most of the time I think it's just somewhere in the middle. Yeah, so. I think that's right. I mean, I think, I think Baxter's credo is to complicate history, and sometimes that discomforts people. You know, people get, <laughs> both on the left and the right, they, they have history that they want to believe in, and so they're sort of slightly unsettled uh, if you do otherwise. And, you know, we do shows about, you know, about guns, about, um, about integration, about Confederate statues, about slavery, about race. You know, we're based in Charlottesville. We did a, you know, show about the sh what happened in Charlottesville last year. You know, these are hot-button topics, uh, which really touch on our politics today. And yeah, we get our fair share of people telling us that we're, you know, obsessed by race or that, you know, why did we do this and not do that? And it's very hard to argue if people are coming from a position which is essentially political and is also based on an inaccurate kind of understanding of the past, you know. And I think I'm always willing to send courteous emails to people. Sometimes you feel... I'm not worth, it's not worth pressing send on this, you know, we're never going to agree. And, and I think sometimes as well, you just, you would just end up, it, a lot of people are like, um, you know, uh, like lighthouses, their kind of beam sweeps around the horizon and, you know, it happens to catch you at one, at one moment and then they're off to one, and, and all it needs is for you to respond in that second and then they're locked onto you, but otherwise they're off firing off emails to somebody else. So I think that all of that is part of being a, being a public kind of having a public profile and being involved in public history, but I don't think you should lose your nerve. I think you should carry on doing what you're doing and trust what you're doing and not be put off by uh, praise or criticism. And I hope this is a universal experience. The emails I get thanking me for covering some of this history and complicating it for people are far outnumber the ones that complain about it in some way. So don't let that discourage you. If, if someone sends you a bad email, somebody else will send you a good one and lift you back up. So. And you're probably also not hearing from the people who have found it entertaining, just like on Amazon. You're like, oh, this thing works great. I don't need to leave a review. But if it breaks the first day, oh, that one-star review is going up. And the same yeah. works with podcasting. The, the ones I would say that I do that are annoying is when they're onto something, when they when they challenge you on something, and you and what they've picked up on is something that, in retrospect, you didn't get quite right. And that you know. So if a broader point that you disagree with is connected to something that actually you didn't do, that, that's tricky. That's tricky. And that's a constant reminder that you've got to be you know, attentive to just make sure you get all this stuff right. Hate it when you know, we get something wrong. Yeah, in the back. Um, if, you have a, if you find a curious fact uh, in your research, how far do you go and how, how, how many sources do you find to validate that curious fact? You just happen upon something random. Um, and how, when do you stop? Like, at what point you're like, oh, it just somebody wrote that in a book, 
and I can't find any other sources, I'm going to give up on this. For me, I try to I go back to elementary school, and I'm like three sources. I need three sources to back this up, <laughs> and if it's not, and if and they have to be credible too, I'm not going to go to like Joe's History Blog at Blogspot.com to find my facts. I'm going to go to like Time Magazine. I'm going to go to periodicals. I'm going to go to Google Books and make sure okay. If I say this, I can at least send somebody to a website to say, this is where I got my information. I'm not the one going back in time, so. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I usually have quite a bit I gotta get through, so it, it's gonna have to be really, really, really interesting to kind of put me off my, my schedule and my plan. <laughs> <laughs> there was one instance, though, where I was reading an article and I was like, I was done with Mount Rushmore. And then I looked at the comments section, and thank God I did, because somebody had pointed out, hey, did you know this mountain actually used to be this, and it was named this by the Native Americans? And I was like, oh, this was in none of my other research. So it like delayed me another two hours. So it is nice to find those things. I use Facebook group. Mm -hmm. um, I, we, I ran a survey and I asked my listeners where they wanted to talk. I'm a Twitter person. I love Twitter. I'm not really a Facebook person, but my listeners are on Facebook, so I'm on Facebook. And we have our group. And we're still in the stages, like we're in the tipping point. There's a tipping point. Like you, It's not enough to start a community. You have to feed it you know, with questions to kind of get all the introverts off the wall and interacting. And now they're starting to, to fill the community with content and it's not just us moderating it um, because at the Omohundro Institute I have an assistant producer who is more savvy with Facebook and she's taken that over in the last year and the community is starting to really thrive. But I think you're right, history commu uh, creates community. Um, and for us, Facebook, a private Facebook group um, has been good. Um, and I say private, it's just like they have to ask for, for, for permission to join so I can just make sure the spammers aren't getting in. Um, but we have over a thousand people in that group and they like to interact. I also ask them to send, um, to email me. Like that's the CTA, the call to action at the end of every episode, I ask a question, email me. Um, and my inbox is always open. So they do interact that way and sometimes they just wanna have a one-on-one -on -one and then, you know, I'm a little delayed in email, but I answer all of it. Um, but I, but those are the tool, two tools I've been using. Yeah, I mean, I think for, for me to interact directly with people, Twitter is easiest, just because it's kind of always there and that you've got a pretty enforced limit on how much you can say, which forces you to be concise um, and, and kind of keep it moving. As far as fostering interaction between fans, I think Facebook is probably better for that. I think it's just a better platform to, for, for people to talk to each other. More people are on it too, like Facebook's user base is just drastically larger. Um, also, I think the audience for history podcasts trends to, it tends to trend just a little bit older than podcasts in general. Um, and Facebook, again, is where you're going to find those people are going to be more comfortable with that. Like Twitter's audience, or like Twitter's user base is very kind of demographically specific um, and, uh, and only really captures a slice of kind of the general podcast audience. I think Facebook's probably better for that. Yeah. I think, I think if I can talk for us all, if I say that we, 
We all think it would be a great outcome from this panel if you all went away and followed us all on Twitter. That would be a really great, <laughs> great thing to do. Uh, for Backstory, we try and, you know, Facebook, Twitter, yes. We also try to drive people back to our own site, uh, which aggregates uh, all of our back catalogue. And one of the things we'll do is, if, we, if a particular show gets a lot of response, we'll often post a blog posting on the back of it, which might bring in some more material we weren't able to use in the show or marshal some earlier stuff. So um, it's a way of driving content back to the site because there's no point in having you know, 10 years of back of fantastic shows on your site if nobody goes to it or even knows it's there. And so every so often we'll, so for example, President Trump this week announces he's wanting to abolish birthright citizenship. Well, we put a show out a few weeks ago about citizenship, so that was an opportunity for us to post on Twitter that you can actually listen to the show and find the facts rather than the rhetoric around it. Yeah, yeah we have yeah. questions. Sure. Uh, so as someone who does kind of like a, a one-man band kind of History show, which is really kind of driven by just my own personal research and like you know, telling the story without the benefit of having like a panel or some expert that I'm bringing in. Um, one thing that I'm really interested in is trying to find ways to tell a compelling story over like a, a fairly long stretch of time. You know, like, there's very few people who can actually hold a story, you know, hold a listener's attention for more than say, um, you know, 10, 15, 30 minutes at a go. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, for those of you who have, who have experience in creating stories like that um, and in telling history in ways that are, you know, compelling over uh, longer stretches of time, you know, what strategies have you developed to, uh, A, make that happen just in terms of, like, your own presentation in the podcast, but B, also, like, as a research strategy, you know, I love research, I love getting into the weeds, but I find that it makes that part of the process go on forever, so uh, I'm wondering if there are research strategies in particular that you developed. Yeah, I, I think for me the composite characters are the way to do that, and often I will kind of stretch those out over generations. It's like a like a James Michener novel, you know, where you have where you can like follow a family through time. Um, I think especially if you're dealing with more abstract trends like uh, like long term shifts in social structure or, uh, or or economic history, those are things that take a long time to play out, and trying to do and trying to cover just a few years. It, is is not going to fully convey that. So for me, that's why that's why composite characters have been so helpful. Is like you can track something over the course of an entire person's life, this entire imaginary person. You try to ground them as fully as possible in the world, and then uh, and then show how that world's going to change, and show over the course of multiple generations how that world uh, how that world might change. For me, that's been really useful. But it's also a matter of selection. Like, what are you going to read in the first place? Um, like, how are you going to define your topic? And I think something that's helpful if you, if you really want to get into the storytelling aspect of it, read a couple of books on screenwriting because nobody in the world understands the narrative form better and how it has to conform to very specific rules of length and, and structure um, than screenwriters do. So read, there are some really, really good books on screenwriting out there that will help you figure out um, where are going to be the high points in this? Where do I need to show some measure of conflict um, that, that's going to get you from point A to point B and hopefully bring your listeners along with you? The, the key thing, I think, is work with an editor. Mm -hmm. And that person doesn't need to be, to be called an editor, and they don't need to be you know, higher up in the hierarchy to you. If you're working on your own, work with a friend, read your script to them, check when their eyes are glazing over, tell them, I want to hear from you when, you've, when I've lost you. Which bit do you love? Which bit do I go on too much about? Which bit do you want to hear more about? Because you know the point is to communicate. And I think that what a good editor in a professional setting will do is to say, 
to listen to a producer's tape or to their narration and say, you've, you've lost me here, or let's turn this around, or you've got the cause and effect the wrong way around, or you know, whatever. Give, give those kind of structural advice, but you need to work with somebody, because it's a tough ask to do that yourself. To write 25 minutes of, of script that you'll read that'll hold the listener's attention? I wouldn't do that. That's really hard. Without someone listening, that's really tough. So get a friend, sit them down with a coffee and a stopwatch and get them to tell you, you know, what's working, what's not working. To the minute, to the minute, you lost me at seven minutes. I don't understand what you said at 12 minutes. That's the kind of detailed granular feedback you need. Yeah. Sure. And that, with that said, how big are your operations? Like, it seems like we have people probably working mostly on their own podcasts and publishing. How many hands have had their video on? How many hands have been on an episode before it's released for each other? So for me, uh, I research and write, then my producer, Leah, who's wonderful and is sitting right there. Leah goes over the script. Um, we have a sound engineer and then a sound designer who puts in sound effects and, and background music and things like that. And so that's also not counting ad people, uh, various other folks who may or may not have some feedback at some point. Like it's, it's a substantial operation at this point. Yeah. Uh, it's just me and sometimes my husband for IT support. <laughs> <laughs> I so I produce. I was an independent podcaster completely. I did everything by myself. I always worked with an audio engineer just because they have all the fancy plugins. I don't even know how to use, but I actually edit the show. Um, so the two of us tag team the editing, and it gets about six passes now before it goes out, and that includes a final listen. Um, now with the Omahundro Institute, you know my assistant producer Holly White does help me out with prep. So we read every book but now she's taking half of those. She is managing the Facebook group, which was something I never had a lot of time to do, where I'll now spend more time on email. Um, we have a grad apprentice who's now managing our Twitter account and helping us post show notes. We have a team when we do the Doing History series um, that includes Joseph Edelman over at Framingham College, our university now, um, Karen Wolf, Martha Howard, and uh, myself and Holly, and we hash out the series episode, like if we're gonna talk about historical process, what are we gonna do? So that's kind of a brainstorming team. But when it comes to actually putting the episodes together, I'm in charge of doing the research, um, scripting you know, scripting out, like mapping it out, because we do it all with interviews, coming up with the questions, interviewing those questions. And I might ask them to look at the questions to see if I missed something or maybe I went down a rabbit hole. So to second David's um, thing, you know, working with an, just a friend to help you edit is, is good. Um, so we're still pretty much a small operation. I'm still doing a lot of it um, in terms of the audio, but uh, we do have support now. Yeah. Uh, I'm afraid we've got quite a lot of people. We've got a researcher, we've got four academic hosts who are full-time academics as well as our hosts. We've got three associate producers. Uh, we're advertising currently for a senior producer, if anybody would like to come and work with us in Backstory, uh, who's going to work with the tape and with the stories that the associate producers are working on. We've got a digital strategist, we've got uh, interns, we've got a lot of people. But in terms of how many people hands will be on it before it gets through the process, you know, the associate, the researcher, the associate producer, the host, and me would be the would be the editorial chain chain of command. And probably that, those last two the other way around, me then the host. Yeah. Is a question yet? I mean, that's, we have a digital uh, strategist who does a lot of that and gets under the hood 
to, to work on all that, and it has been, and it has been, yeah. And we, we currently with Panoply, uh, I think that may change, and we work quite closely with them. And also the most terrifying bit of kit that we have is a, a piece, uh, I don't even know what it's called, but it, it, I saw it once and it horrified me, and it's basically a program which shows you where people stop listening to your podcast. This goes back to my point about, have you lost me? And so it, 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 the audience happily going along and then suddenly they drop off the cliff and it's like, oh, what did we do at seven minutes in, you know? And that's horrifying, <laughs> that level of detail. What's that program called? Oh, I can't remember. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It's an Apple Podcast Stats. Yep. You can check that as well. Apple Podcast Stats will tell you that. It's the same, same thing working with uh, high school. I, I teach uh, 10th grade history, and it's exactly the same kind of thing where it's like what, what you're describing, but you know exactly when you lose them. That's right. It's really hard to get people back. You know, and the thing is, you know, podcasts are so easy to get into and so easy to turn off. You know, there's no, it's not like the old days in the radio where to retune the button, you know, find the new station. You know, if, if you've lost it, if you've lost it. And so, you know, you've got to make those opening segments like glue. You've really got to get people interested and stick. And, you know, you've got to fulfill the promise that you make to people. Because if people think they're going to listen to a, a history of, you know, the automobile and they end up listening to something else, they're not going to come back, you know. So that you've got to be transparent and obvious and engaging with what you do. Otherwise, there are many, many other places for your audience to go. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to get your reaction to this. It's a credibility, legitimacy question. Uh, so my background is in literature, uh, not history. But um, my podcast project is a history project. Um, I stumbled on a story in my hometown, and it was too good and too big of a story to walk away from. Um, it has not been, this is hidden history. Um, so I'm, I'm actively uncovering it, and I'm going to bring the listener along with me um, as I do that. I've already got, I'm already two years in. Um, so I'm, I plan to invite historians um, who do this for a living to come onto the show and help sort of interpret my findings and um, corroborate the larger field of the context, New England, for example. Um, but uh, as a non-historian, uh, going into a venture like this, do you have any just thoughts? Uh, and don't be afraid to um, scare me or hurt my feelings. Um, can I just say, this This feels like a real meaty topic. I need to apologize to you guys. I need to go. I um, foolishly have booked myself on a flight, and I'm a nervous purpose, and so I'm anxious I'm going to miss it. So I'm going to go. I'm really sorry. That sounds like a fascinating topic. I'm going to leave it to these guys. Thank you all so much. It's been a great pleasure. So thanks very much. If you have anything you'd like to ask me or send me for a backstory, I'm on the website. Please have a look. And do follow us all on Twitter. Thanks. Um, I, I think give yourself some context to start with. So figure out what the period is, that you figure out exactly what the period is that you're working on, the places that you're working on, find a few good books and, and dig into them. Um, just, to, just to kind of ground yourself in whatever the existing history is, and that's going to help you too when you go to interview those historians who are, who are more specialized on the topics that you're looking at, that you'll be able to ask them better questions, right? So figure out what are the standard works on, on whatever it is that I'm dealing with, familiarize yourself with those, um, and then use that as your starting point to dive into the to, to uh, dive in more deeply when you when it comes time to interview those people. I think also putting yourself forward as a host who's not a historian is a really good thing to say up front too, so that they know they're also not historians, so they're going along on this journey with you, as you said. Because I'm not like I wasn't history major. I got C's in history because of dates, dates, dates. But. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think bringing them along on your journey 
and saying, I'm not a historian, but these are, this is what I'm finding out. I think that's going to make it really compelling. And with your history in literature, you're already going to know how to write and how to appeal to your audience to get them to, oh my gosh, like what's going to happen? And then that's when you say, and you can turn tune into the next episode, brought to you by Blue Apron. <laughs> and I think just having guests on there, guest yeah. experts, will lend you credibility too because it'll be like you'll know who to ask and that you're having other people talk about complicated things that maybe you don't quite understand um, and asking questions that, that you're curious about or you think that you need to get at the story. People, you know, listeners respect it when you, when you ask questions, especially ones that they may be even thinking about, like, oh yeah. Um, so yeah, I think just being open and, and informed that that's all gonna help you. I mean, there's a whole lot of history podcasts are done by people who aren't historians that are credible and that people really enjoy. And so, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a, a deal breaker there. Okay, is it, these are repeat questions. Is there anybody else who had another question that we didn't get to? Okay. Yeah, just to follow up on uh, what was just being discussed, and so this, uh, about this question of credibility, um, especially about this, uh, specifically advertising uh, your credentials or lack of them on the show. I mean, one of the biggest, history, if not the biggest history podcast is created by someone who you know, is, is famously not a historian, but a fan of history. Um, I'm wondering, given that, you know, do listeners, does credibility really matter to listeners? And if not, is that a problem? At the end of my shows, I make sure to say this episode was sourced from Time Magazine. Like I list three of my sources and let them know that you know the links where I found this are in the show notes. If you want to find out more, or if you want to see where I got my facts, you know I'm also open for you to email me. But I'm also going to say this is where I got my facts from. So it is nice to put that out there. And as a journalist, it was for me as a journalist, it was always like he said this, he said that. We can only report what the press release says. We can't actually come out and say hey, the mayor did this. You know, we have to say, oh, well, on this date, the policeman said that he did this. So I look at it from that perspective. I think it depends on what kind of show you're doing. Um, the, what, your credentials are going to matter more or less. Um, I think if, you're if you really want to engage deeply with scholarship, like sometimes it helps your credibility to say, I have this kind of background in this. Um, but it's not strictly necessary. I mean, it does, like there are plenty of people with PhDs in history who don't produce great work and who don't engage critically with scholarship and who are, are not like fantastic at the craft of doing it. I mean, the ability to communicate uh, complex information to an audience of lay people is not synonymous with having with having a PhD or having an MA or having those kinds of credentials. It's it's about how well can you absorb the kind of research that you need to absorb and and put it in in plain understandable language for people. Like those are those do not necessarily speak to um, speak to the kind of credentials that you have. I do have a PhD, and I think you only hear about it once, no, maybe twice, when I interview my advisor, who's Alan Taylor, um, and it's just because I was excited to have Alan on the show. Um, listeners know that I do the prep work. They know that I read. It's on the website. I don't hide the fact I have a PhD, but I don't, there's no form, podcasts are informal, and it just fits with my personality and my style. Like, I'm okay if they know that I'm Liz. I don't feel I need to, to advertise it. But my listeners can tell too in the sense that like, I know which questions to ask. I know who to get on the show. If they ask me for a topic request, you know, I can usually figure out, 
you know, who I can get to do that. So I think credibility comes in different ways. And I think, you know, showing prep and care and thinking about your listeners and putting them first is a huge step towards, towards credibility and establishing that trust with your audience. And especially admitting if you've made a mistake too, yep. that really lends to your credibility. Well, William and Mary created a job for me so I could do my podcast with them. So it might, you know, just given the number of invitations I've gotten to speak at universities this year, it's like, I joke, but I think it's kind of true. Academics discovered podcasting in 2018, and I think that they're coming, and it was exciting to see this conference because, again, I think it speaks to this moment, at least in the humanities. I know they've been podcasting for a while in science, um, but... I think it's coming, and I think that there, you're going to see more ownership. You know, just from when I started, I used to have to explain to guests, yes, this is a podcast, this is what it is. <laughs> I have a PhD, so you don't have to worry about, like, off-the-wall things. But now it's like they're clamoring to get on onto shows. Um, so I think you're going to see a, a shift happen a little bit and more university and, and departmentally produced shows is my take. I disagree just a little bit, and I, I think the reason I disagree is because I think they missed the boat. I, I think the structure of the podcasting industry has changed pretty drastically just in the last couple of years to the point where large companies own drastically more of the market. And if universities had kind of put their resources toward it five or six years ago, they could have kind of established brands that would last through this, this moment of transition um, where kind of platform, like large platforms to launch a show from and institutional support from, uh, I mean, people who know how to put things out there and know how to, and have like digital marketing experience and social, me and social media platforms from which to build a show. Um, I think, I think those things, as more and more money flows into the podcasting industry, is is going to substantially change it. I think universities are going to try, and I think they're going to make some really good shows. But I think, in terms of capturing the public moment, as the podcast as podcasting grows in general, like universities should have should have tried it a few years ago. Also, if, if anybody was at the future of podcasting, uh, the last session. They were talking about how in China, educational podcasts are like the popular thing, where over here it's true crime, over there it's educational, and there it, it's slowly starting to come over here more and more. So I think we are going to see more from institutions and academics and historical societies. It's just a matter of, is it going to be as compelling as, say, the new Gimlet show? Because the, like, it, it comes down to who has the levers of access to public attention. And increasingly, th that access lies in the hands of kind of large, like very large podcasting companies. Like that's, it's just kind of the way that industry is increasingly structured and as more and more money flows into it. 
the best thing you have, the best resource you have is your listeners and ask them to share your show. Don't ask them for ratings and reviews. Ask them for one thing, ask them to share their show. I have this tactic where every time somebody sends me an email, I just thank them for being an active listener and reaching out, keeping the show vibrant, and I thank them for telling others because they've helped me grow the show. Absolutely true, do I know that listener did it? No, but they probably did, and if they didn't, well, I thank them, so I, my hope is that they're gonna go they're gonna go do it, but I think what they said about the industry is is totally true. I do think you will see academics get more into it, but will they be successful? I don't know. Well, it depends on how you define success, yeah. right? It's like, are you trying to reach, it depends on the size of the audience you're trying to reach. If you're trying to build a commercially sustainable show, then probably not, but if you're doing this as part of an, a mission of public outreach that can still reach a pretty substantially sized audience, like larger than you're ever gonna reach in a lecture room or mm -hmm. through publishing something, like a niche thing for an academic press, absolutely. So it depends on how you define it. Yeah. There's a question down here, yeah. yeah. So I think we're all familiar with like, we're going to talk about X, but to understand X, we first have to talk about Y, and then like that can continue to go on forever. Um, I'm wondering how you draw the line of like how much context is too much context for an individual podcast, you know, episode or topic that you're covering. So again, since mine's very short, I try not to do more than a sentence or two, but I will warn my audience too. By the way, I fell into a Google wor wormhole this week, so you're gonna hear this fact whether you like it or not. I don't like threaten them, but I'm like, this is also a really interesting fact and I need you to know this, Just I'll get to it later, just trust me. And I mean, the payoff is in seven minutes on my podcast, so it's not as bad. That's, that's a really good question, and it's kind of a central problem. Like, how, uh, how much do your listeners need to know before you can take them where, where you're trying to go over the course of the episode? Um, I, try to, I, I try to make every episode as self-contained as possible where I will explain enough that if this is the first thing they've ever heard of my show, they should be able to get more or less the gist of what's happening. But at the same time, you can't rehash everything all the time, so I'll refer back to previous episodes. I try and find familiar figures to uh, like to kind of hang things on. So like, um, for example, I'm doing stuff on the late Middle Ages right now, and and everybody has, who's listening to the show has seen Braveheart. So we're if we, so I've mentioned like the bad guy in Braveheart as kind of a yeah. thing that everybody can come back to. Um, probably seven times at this point. But, but trying to find like familiar pieces of pop culture history that they, that they may have, a, that your audience may have a, a kind of a background to remember, start from there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it kind of varies depending on your show too. Like if your show's like really niche, then your audience, you, you may not have to explain all that much uh, to them. And we're out of time. We are. But we would be happy to answer questions afterwards, but for the official session, we're now closed. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much.